Can DNA determine Jewish status? So it used to be part of my job. Um, I often have to, when I meet people, I want to know if they are Jewish, part of our Jewish community. Um, so I ask people all the time, are you Jewish? And it used to be sometimes people would say yes. Sometimes people would say no. Sometimes people told me, tell me, none of your business. And then I know, <laughs> then I know that they're Jewish. <laughs> However, what's happened recently in the last couple years is when I ask people, are you Jewish, I get, I'm 10% Jewish, I'm 30% Jewish. And I keep getting percentages, people tell me their percentage of how Jewish they are. And that's due to the rise recently of... Um, of genetic ancestry companies that um, are able to, you send off your uh, swab of your saliva, or you spit into a, into a tube and send it off, and they um, tell you what your ancestry is, and many people who were unaware that they had Jewish ancestry now discover that they are, have some Jewish ancestry. So the question then is, can a DNA test determine your Jewish status? So this is a very relevant topic for a lot of people, um, <coughs> and a lot of people have mentioned that to me. Um, it is also a very sensitive topic, sensitive because we are talking about people's identity, what their identity is, and identity is a very sensitive topic. Um, it, it, it impacts a lot of individuals, a lot of people are impacted by their identity, and it can make a very big impact on their life. Um, it's important to also note that Jewish status, in other words, is someone Jewish or not, is a very complex but also very important topic. Um, so it's very, it's, there are, it is complicated, it is somewhat important. I should also point out that genetics itself is an emerging and a very fast evolving field of science. So what might be true today is constantly changing. Um, it's likely going to change in the coming years as we get a better and better understanding of, the, of genetics, of the, our genome sequencing, and um, better un learn how to read it better. And as our methods improve, um, definitely the what we can do with it and its impact in our laws will definitely, in our rules regarding being Jewish, um, and other relevant rules will definitely change as well. Um, so it is, a, um, it, is, it is definitely a growing field. Um, we should be clear, though, it is given that this is also a new field, so the halacha, which halacha means Jewish law relevant to DNA testing, is still in the developing stages. Halacha, like any other legal system, takes years to develop and formulate um, to really create a... Um, standard, and so it's still not fully developed on, in a lot of parts at this stage. Um, it's still in its developing stages. Yet we should point out, and this is very important, that everything in Jewish rules or Jewish law that we call halacha is not just the way somebody feels or thinks, not the way a rabbi feels or the way a Beth Din, a member of a Jewish court, feels or thinks, but there's a very particular system of rules 
and a very, very particular system of how halachas can be decided and how they evolve. Um, there's very strict rules as to how it happens. It's not just whatever you feel like. It's based very much on precedent. It's based very much on specific um, systems of decision. Um, it's not just based on some rabbi or some court or some rabbinic committee's whims or feelings. And um, you must, any halacha that is decided must be able to be defended in what we call a teshuva or a responsa, which is essentially a essay that, um, that will, has to be able to defend that particular halachic position. So it's not just a, um, it's, it's not just a random thing, but it does have to follow these rules of development. We did a class some time ago about how halacha evolves, and, or I think we called it who decides halacha, who decides Jewish law. Before I get into the details of this topic, I, sh- I must point out that in this topic that we are discussing, can DNA determine someone's Jewish status? There are really three major fields that come together over here. Firstly, biology, or particularly genetic biology. Um, which is a growing and a fast emerging field. There's now a specific um, field a person can specialize in, a uh, geneticist, um, somebody who specializes in genetics. Um, It also very much involves um, statistics, mathematical statistics, um, because as we'll see soon, um, it's very much a numbers game. And so, um, which is a somewhat of a different field that one must be very well specialized in in order to truly understand, in order to bring it all together. And as well as it also um, involves a particular section of halacha, of Jewish law, called yuchsin, or Jewish status. Um, it's a very specialized field of Jewish law. Um, I personally do not have expert- expertise in any of those three topics. So I am not a biologist, nor have I majored in biology. I am not a statistician, nor have I majored in statistics. Uh, While I do have a strong background in halacha and Jewish law, since I am a rabbi, um, I I am what you would call a general practitioner rabbi, (laughs) or a communal rabbi. Um, There are, like in medicine, there are, spe- there are specialized areas of halacha, of Jewish law, and there are individuals that have studied and experts in specific areas of Jewish law. One particular complex area is yuchsin, um, or Jewish status, Jewish background. Um, it's a very complex area of Jewish law um, that I myself would not... Um, I myself would not rule in um, if there was a complex question that arose. When we do have complex questions in this community, which we do from time to time, I will always reach out to um, well-known experts um, here in the U.S. or in Israel or in other places um, who can help us with um, determining an individual's particular status when necessary. So given my lack of expertise in the field... um, Nothing that I'm going to say should be taken as a halachic ruling in any way. My goal is not to give you a comprehensive understanding of the answer to this question, can DNA determine Jewish status, since I am not um, 
I am not qualified in any way to give such a comprehensive answer. And the answer, if it was straightforward, I could tell you that's the answer because that's what the experts say. It's not straightforward. Um, and so I'm just going to give you a little bit of a, um, some interesting details about this fascinating subject that I've discovered while studying it that I think you will find fascinating as well. But nothing, nothing that I'm going to say should be considered determinative or final in any way. Um, it is a very, very complicated topic, which I have spent some time in preparation of this class researching. Um, but um, there's no way that in the next 45 plus, we'll probably go a little over time, minutes that we have that we can cover this topic in its entirety. Um, so I will touch on some different small parts on this topic as best as I can in the time given. Um, so to, to be clear, this class is not in any way a class where I'm giving you rulings or facts, but it's simply, or final um, final rules, but I'm simply sharing interesting information about this topic. So some 60 years ago, bi uh, or biologists discovered, it was perhaps known for a little longer, that our protein is not just made up of random molecules, but it's really a sequence of specific nucleotides of, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, uh, deoxyribo Ribonucleic, the ox ribonucleic acid, DNA, that include all the information that we need to develop. So over the years, we've learned to read the DNA sequence to be able to understand what the different sequences mean um, within a person's particular um, genome, within a person's particular GNA. About 20 years ago, um, New generations of sequencing machines were developed that allows, allowed us to, easy, to easily um, perform what's called automatic sequencing in that we can put a piece of protein into a machine and it essentially can do a lot of the sequencing for us um, in an automated way and pump out the sequence on a screen that we can, um, that we can see um, this is, it, and which made DNA sequencing fairly cheap and fairly easy um, for companies that have these advanced machines. Um, around the same time, the Human Genome Project was completed, which is about 20 years ago, which was essentially a map of the human genome, a map of our DNA. And so we now understand pretty much all of a, at least what it is, if we don't understand how it works or why, um, we understand pretty much all of the human genome, and so we're able to pinpoint particular spots and look at the, um, our DNA. Now, the human genome includes um, more than 3 billion DNA um, str strands, or what's called base pairs. Um, all of almost those, all, almost all of those 3 billion are identical for all humans. However, um, when mapping the human genome, um, we have discovered that there is variations from person to person, which is why we all look different, act different, think different, um, have different um, things happening to us, um, med medical occurrences and the like, because of variations within our own, um, within our own genome. Um, so... 
In recent years, um, the knowledge of the human genome and cheap sequencing methods has allowed technicians to quickly and cheaply read the 300,000 or so cells within humans that, ten that we know of, at least, that tend to be different from one person to the next. And this is used commercially um, really for two main purposes. Firstly, it's used in medicine. It's used to be able to predict susceptibility to specific diseases. Today, um, a person can know in advance if they have specific diseases. Often, um, no, this knowledge can help you avoid the disease. Um, for recessive genes, where you need two parents that have the same in order to have a child, we can do tests before marriage to ensure that we do not have recessive disease such as Tay-Sachs. Um, and as a result of that, um, the Tay-Sachs from being very common has become almost unheard of within the Jewish community. Um, we also can um, identify genes that will allow us to take preventative measures such as the BRCA gene, which, um, um, which, um, can, which we know leads to high likeliness of uh, breast cancer. And um, we can take... A, um, preventative measures such as uh, mastectomy to be able to avoid that, knowing that somebody has a high chance of getting it. Um, it's also used um, to diagnose certain diseases. Um, it's used um, both to understand why someone has a specific, to diagnose a specific condition. It is also used to read specific cancers and know exactly what type of cancer they are. Um, it's also been used more recently um, in offering cures to know which cures people will respond to. Um, and even um, most recently, we've had the ability of gene editing, which um, there's some controversy over to be able to also possibly cure people from specific diseases. Right, so to responding to drugs. It's used to know how someone's going to respond to a drug. Very good. So it's also used as so one use is medical. Another very important use that um, is very common is for forcenic testing. And this is not medicine-related, but it could be used for all sorts of different purposes. Um, most common is to identify criminals, often in rape cases. It's the best way to identify a um, rapist. Um, it can be forensic testing. Yeah, well, you said forensic. I don't forensic. Know. Forensic testing. Okay. Um, it can also be used to identify... Victims, if you don't know if somebody perhaps has died or somebody is unaware of their identity, um, it can be used to, prov to prove parenthood. Um, it can be used to prove relationships. <coughs> this can be used <coughs> excuse me, to resolve financial disputes. <coughs> it could be used to resolve for criminal uh, proceedings um, and for many other purposes as well. So it's also more recently been used for what we could call recreational gene genealogical testing, which is essentially people who have a hobby gene of genealogy or are interested in finding out their ancestry um, can find relatives and discover their genealog genealogical background. Um, thank you. People can test, and there are a number of companies that are advertising extensively today, um, notably um, Ancestry.com and 23andMe, 
that um, advertise, they send you a kit and you spit into it and you send it back and they'll tell you your, um, your, your ancestral background. <coughs> Our class today will focus on this third use of DNA sequencing, which was commonly called genetic testing. So now genetic testing itself can raise different halachic or Jewish legal questions, particularly medical genetic testing, raises a whole host of ethical questions. Most of them relate to the response of specific results. In other words, what do you do if you have a specific result? Should you um, do uh, some form of preventative treatment? Should you not? Um, You have a a fetus, a child um, prior to birth who you know has specific diseases, should you abort, should you not, that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. Um, The use of genetic testing to find criminals (coughs) is not particularly relevant to halacha, to Jewish law, since Jewish criminal law is no longer used in practice. More relevant, though, today is using genetic testing to identify victims or parts of victims in the event of death. This could be necessary for burial, to know... um, who the relatives are, to be able to, um, to, to know who should mourn. Uh, Torah has special laws for mourning. It's perhaps even more important um, or more meaningful for um, uh, inheritance. It can be relevant sometimes to know who a child is, uh, if somebody is a real child or not. It's also perhaps even more important to prove the death of a spouse Jewish law forbids somebody from, who is married from remarrying until they can prove that they are either divorced or their spouse has died. If a spouse disappears, um, you cannot annul the marriage. You must prove the spouse's death um, in, or obtain a divorce. Um, this created throughout history a um, situation called aguna, which is a um, topic of its own, of um, people who... <coughs> Have not been able to who have are, whose spouses have disappeared and are not able to locate them, um, and one of the most um, complex areas of Jewish law of halacha is how to prove that somebody actually died, and so um, one could in theory use DNA testing today if one finds um, remains one could use DNA testing to identify. Um, that somebody is dead, uh, as somebody has died. It could also be used for paternal proof, for custody, or financial responsibility. Um, and so the question at hand is, is the genetic test strong enough proof to resolve the, the question at hand, um, whatever foreseen a question you are looking to resolve? So... So in this instance... Essentially, what we are trying to do is we have a person or a body, um, and we are trying to identify the person themselves using genetic testing. This could be done by comparing their own DNA sequence to that of the to that of a record, perhaps we have of their DNA sequence, or another item we have that has their DNA sequence on it. So we're comparing their own sequence to their own sequence. It can also be done sometimes by comparing DNA sequence of one person to another close relative and see if they are very close. So when deciding whether a DNA net match is sufficient evidence 
for whatever question we're trying to resolve at hand, that we're looking for proof, two things need to be established. Firstly, you need to establish how strong that DNA evidence actually is. When dealing with evidence in law, and this is true in Jewish law as well as in our, um, in our American law and our state law, uh, when dealing with evidence, there are many different levels of evidence. And every piece of evidence you have must be filed or placed into its particular level. How strong is that evidence? And so when we have DNA evidence, we have to ask, how strong is that DNA evidence? The other question you always have to ask with evidence is, the question at hand, what level evidence do we need to resolve the question at hand? Depending on what the question is. Some questions resolve fairly low le- require fairly low levels of evidence. Some questions require much, much greater levels of evidence. In our civil in law, for example, we have a lower level of evidence required than in criminal law. For a death penalty, we'll require an even higher level of evidence. So the question is, what level of evidence is required? Sometimes multiple small or or lower level evidences can be combined together to create stronger evidence. So you always need to ask two questions when looking at evidence. What level evidence is the evidence before us? And what level evidence is required for our to resolve our the question that we are trying to resolve? So let's deal with them one by one. Firstly, the strength of DNA evidence. How strong is DNA evidence? So it really varies. Because there are many, many variables that come into play when looking at DNA evidence. The first question is, the original sample, the sample that we're looking at, where did it come from? How accurate is it? The ideal DNA sample is blood, because blood is usually clean of any external influences. Blood tests would be the best way to get a a pure DNA sample. Often, though, saliva is used, or other parts, (coughs) external parts of a person's protein from a person. Saliva can include um, bacteria that are found in the saliva, Saliva can be altered also by food and other things that go into a person's mouth. And so therefore, saliva is a somewhat impure and incomplete. Um, the DNA that you're going to be looking at will, is impure and somewhat incomplete and will not be as strong evidence as looking at a blood sample. Um, we also have to look at what are we comparing it to. Are we comparing it to another blood sample of the same individual? Are we comparing it to another body part? What else are we comparing it to? The thing that we are comparing it to, how confident are we that the thing we are comparing it to is correct? Is it really part of the person whom you are trying to (coughs) obtain DNA evidence? Are they really, if you're looking at a close relative, are they really a relative? Are they, how close a relative are they? It further depends on who is doing the testing. Why? Firstly, you have to make sure that the original sample is indeed the sample being tested. Human error 
can allow things to get mixed up. Today we have in medicine, we have many safeguards to ensure that samples of testing do not get mixed up. Um, but even so, human error is always possible. There are people building the machines, writing the software, writing the algorithms for them, people handling the material, people reading the machines. They're all humans. All those humans are all prone to error. And there, where there are humans, there will be errors. Furthermore, when we look at DNA, and we look at DNA testing, only a handful of, a small handful of base pairs of DNA where variations are common are usually looked at. It doesn't make sense to look at hundreds of thousands of um, base pairs, hundreds of thousands of sequences, because that would be extremely, extremely expensive and very time-consuming. Rather, just a handful of sequences are looked at. Um, and the question is, how many of those sequences are looked at? Which ones were looked at? How common are their variances, are the different variances? And all these questions have to be answered and really can only be answered by the company that is doing the testing. So, furthermore, what, so, and while it's almost certainly possible that no two people have the exact same DNA because there are so many possible variations, it's almost impossible, although there's no way we can know until every person on earth has had their DNA tested, but we can't know for certainty, but it's highly likely um, that no two people on earth have to share the exact same DNA. Um, however, when looking at smaller selections, the chances of some people having the same variations increases. And it would depend very much on how many, how many, how many, how large your sequencing was, your selection was, and which particular areas you looked at, um, and how and what their variations are. So all these things are all variables that all have to be looked at when looking at the proof. In reality, um, there are quality genome sequencing companies or genetic testing company, com uh, companies that are known to have over 99.99 reading accuracy rates or that have at least over 99%. They usually won't claim over 99%, but there are companies that have shown to have over 99% accuracy rates. Um, there are many, many companies doing it, thousands in fact. Um, and a lot of them don't have good records, but there are companies that do. But we do have to keep in mind that there are many that are inaccurate and people have been harmed in serious ways due to inaccurate DNA readings, both medically harmed due to medical inaccurate readings, people that have been convicted for crimes they did not commit due to inaccurate readings, um, which could be anyone's fault along the way from the person who took the original test to anyone handling along the way, to the person who wrote the algorithm in the machine. Uh, it could be anyone's fault along the way, but it, it has happened and it can happen. So we could therefore say that DNA from only from a um, company that has a very, very strong record is fairly accurate, over 99% accurate, but there is never 100%. How strong of a evidence do we need to identify an individual? So it really depends on the 
question at hand that we are looking to resolve. And in halacha, in Jewish law, there are many, many different types of evidence and many, many different levels of evidence. And it is an extremely complex field of halacha. But for our our purposes, I am going to simplify it and just address two main areas of, um, two main categories of proof. One is called siman, or Hebrew for a sign, and one is called siman muvhak. Siman muvhak means an absolute sign. What is the difference? A siman is a sign when identifying an individual that is unique to the individual, but there are likely other people on earth that have the same sign. An example, a common example of this would be if somebody has a mole on their skin of a specific color and size in a specific spot. That is somewhat unique to that individual. Now, does nobody else on earth have that same mole in the same spot? Likely, um, depending on how detailed you get, but if you're just looking at it very generally, likely there are other people on earth that have the mole in the same spot. What are the chances that just the individual you are seeking to identify happens to be, or the indiv- just uh, happens to be the one that you find in front of you um, and they happens to have that same mole? What are the chances of that happening? It could happen. It's highly unlikely. That is what we call a siman, a sign that is used in some parts of Jewish law in order to, for, as evidence. But it is not overwhelming evidence by any stretch. It is not considered overwhelming evidence. Um, we can use a siman, a sign, sometimes to prove as proof of death, um, but only in a very limited way. We can use a sign as proof of relation for financial purposes, such as inheritance, um, we can use it only in very, very few cases, but we generally will avoid using it. The other kind of sign is a siman muvhak. A siman muvhak is a sign that is very unique to that individual, to the point that while not impossible, it is highly unlikely that anybody else on earth has that same sign. An example in halacha would be if somebody has a unique external tumor on their body. Um, That external tumor, um, while people do have tumors, um, the chances of another person on earth having the same tumor, looking the same, in the same spot, is extremely unlikely that anybody has that. Um, Perhaps a more classic example of... um, of that is human facial recognition. The chances of another person looking the exact same as you to the point that somebody that knows you well would get confused, unless you have a twin, um, is highly unlikely. It is possible that somebody looks the exact same as you, that you have a perfect look-alike. People have look-alikes, but they're not exact look-alikes. Usually someone that knows you well can tell the difference. The chance of you having a perfect look-alike is highly, highly unlikely. So that would be in halacha considered a siman muvak. Now, a siman muvak is much stronger evidence. Um, a siman muvak, 
A siman muvak can generally be used. Um, a, a, can generally be used as um, evidence to establish somebody's identity. Um, it's not absolute evidence. Usually, we need evidence. Usually, um, uh, usually, um, a siman muvaks would only work as evidence if you have some sort of ba- what we call base evidence, or what they call in our language, in our um, legal language, um, the body ev- of evidence. Um, in other words, if somebody, if there is evidence perhaps to a murder, but you have no body and nobody saw it and nobody knows that it happened, you have no base to start with. And so therefore, even a, in such an instance, even a sivan, siman muvhak would not prove anything. So, um, so if you have, so you would need some sort of base or some sort of evidence pointing in that direction to go with a siman muvak in order for it to really serve as evidence. Yes? Conversely, is the use of DNA evidence much more appropriate to eliminate someone from consideration as uh, a participant? Yes. So a siman would work, even a siman, a lower level evidence, would work very well to eliminate. Very good point. For elimination, a siman works very well. If you know that this person had a mole in a specific spot and the individual in front of you does not have a mole in that spot unless they did plastic surgery and there's reason to believe they did plastic surgery, it's hardly unlikely that it's the same person. So it's very good to eliminate. But to prove something positively, it's very difficult. Okay. So how do you... Where does DNA fall in this? So... It really depends. So poskim, that's halachic authorities today, widely agree that DNA from a reputable company, which is more than 99% accurate, um, and chances are they seek, they, a reputable company will be sequencing the DNA to the point where no other person on earth likely has your DNA, um, would be considered a siman muvhak, or at least close to a siman muvhak. And therefore, it can generally be used in halacha, together with other evidence, to establish death for burial, for relatives to know to mourn, for inheritance, um, for to, and even to allow a spouse to remarry if there is DNA evidence. Um, the Israeli rabbinate has used DNA evidence for um, <coughs> missing people, um, such as hostages that were taken, but we know they were killed, um, but believed to be killed, um, people who were killed in, um, in other tragedies where their bodies were not located afterwards. They have used DNA evidence in order to prove, um, to be considered a halachic proof of death. Sometimes, however, we establish, um, we use DNA evidence to establish relationships not from the person, not to, sorry, to establish identity, not from the person's own original DNA, but from that of a relative. In other words, you say you're not looking at this person's DNA compared to their own DNA, but you're looking at this person's DNA compared to their parents, their siblings, their uncle's DNA, a relative's DNA. So over here, the ev- level of evidence is usually a little lower. When, identifi- when identifying parents and children, comparing parents to children, it will be fairly similar. Every child is 23 of their parents, 46 chromosomes. So you should be 
um, fairly, fairly similar to your parents. There is some mutation, some very slight mutation that occurs from one person to the next, from every parent to child, but it's extremely, extremely slight. And so um, it usually will not show up in a DNA test. So identifying parents and children will generally be fairly accurate. When moving to further relatives, though, it already changes. Two children that come from the same two parents can have anywhere between 46 and 0 of the same chromosomes, in theory. In reality, the chances of having two children that are not twins having the same 46 chromosomes or zero of the same chromosomes, because they just happen to get the 23 different ones from their parents, is the chance of that happening is extremely, extremely low, though not impossible. More likely, most siblings share about 50%, give or take, um, of, their, of each other's chromosomes. Once you move further out, though, the numbers begin to get a lot smaller, and the variation gets a lot smaller. So while with siblings there will be a curve or a bell curve where most will be will have be somewhere around, around the 50% range, um, some may be 40, some may be 30% the same, some may be 60, maybe 70, and then it will taper off. In other words, it will be less and less and less common as you get smaller. When you move to relatives that are further out, that bell curve is going to get much narrower. In other words, the variations are between a co two cousins can, in theory, uh, two cousins can, in theory, have 25% of the same DNA, um, and they cannot have. They can have much, much less or much, much more. Um, so they can, in theory, uh, so once you start moving further out, the variations also change dramatically. Um, so, due to the lack of accuracy with relatives, Poskim generally consider any DNA establishment that's halachic authorities through a relative, and that's only a close relative, a very, fairly close relative, really, such as a sibling, really to be a regular simon, but not a simon muvhak. It's not a very strong evidence, but it would be what we could call a lower level evidence. Can it then be used to establish Jewish status? So before we get to, the, to answer this question, or at least attempt to address this question, I don't know if we're going to answer it, um, first let's talk quickly a little bit about what is Jewish status. So Jewish status, or in Hebrew, birur yahadut. We Jews consider ourselves to be members of God's covenant or B'nai Brit. We Jews are a people, we're a distinct nation, a distinct people. And what makes us distinct is the covenant that we made with God at standing at Sinai over 3,000 years ago as a people. In order to be halachically considered a Jew, one must be a member of God's covenant. We, in this covenant, committed to following God's Torah and thereby we became his chosen people. And so we members, when we speak of a halachic Jew, a person who is Jewish from a halachic Jewish legal perspective, we are speaking of somebody who is halachically a member of God's covenant. Many Jewish laws 
and rules are limited only to those who are B'nai Brit, those who are halachically Jewish. For example, we can only call a fellow Jew to read from the Torah. Only a, another a Jew can be, a halachic Jew can be counted as a, a, a male Jew, can be counted as a minion, uh, a quorum of ten. Only a halachic um, Jew can be um, circumcised, um, can lay tefillin, and there are many similar rules in Judaism that can only that are only applied to somebody who is halachically Jewish. Most importantly, the most important rule is that a Jew, according to halacha, is only allowed to marry a fellow Jew. The Jew is forbidden from marrying a non-Jew. And that Jew must be a halachic Jew in order to, for Jewish law to allow such a marriage. And so therefore the most important use of yuchsin or birur yahadut, identifying one's Jewish status, and when I as a rabbi would employ it is when a couple would come to me um, and ask me to marry them. And I would then have to do what's called a birur yahadut. I would have to establish that both um, that each of the couple um, is Jewish, is halachically Jewish, um, before I am able to marry them. Um, there's a number of other things that have to be requirements for a couple for marriage, because even Jews, certain Jews are not allowed to marry. There's certain limits, um, and also one has to establish that neither individual is married, which itself must be established, but all of this must be legally established. For many people, as I'll soon explain, it's fairly straightforward. For some, it can be complex. Yes, Elise? So two questions. The first is, does halachically Jewish mean um, by DNA testing, or does it also include conversion? That's the question that I'm going to address in a moment. Okay, and when you discuss conversion, we talk about the line from Ruth to David, to King David. Okay, so we talk about Ruth afterwards. Good question. Great question, Elise, about Ruth. Um, let's talk about Ruth at the end. Um, yes? I just have one question. So does being uh, Jewish have to be uh, continuous? And what if the chain went broken? I'm going to address that in a moment. I'm going to address all these questions. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Sandy and Elise. So... So historically, so what makes someone halachically Jewish? So be, to be considered a Jew halachically, a person must have joined God's covenant. There's a process for joining God's covenant. The original Jewish people um, joined God's covenant at Sinai. There's a particular process. It's often referred to in Hebrew. It's called gerut. It's often translated as conversion. Is the particular process of joining God's covenant. Anyone who joins God's covenant is considered halachically Jewish. God's covenant transfers automatically, matrilineally, in other words, from mother to daughter. And so a um, woman who joined God's covenant, all of her descendants, matrilineal descendants, would automatically be members of God's covenant. So in, uh, any, anyone else um, who... Them, so anyone today who either themselves or their matrilineal ancestor, their mother's mother's mother, at some point joined God's covenant would be halachically Jewish. Anybody else 
who did not themselves convert nor the, or join the covenant, nor did their ancestors, their matrilineal ancestor at any point join the covenant, would not be considered Jewish halachically, and they would be forbidden from marrying, a, fellow, a Jew would be forbidden from marrying them. So how do we know who is Jewish and who is not? So historically, it was fairly easy to prove if someone was Jewish. Now, if someone went through a conversion, whether the conversion was a valid conversion or invalid conversion is a question of its own. How do we know if that conversion was valid? Is there such a thing as an invalid conversion? What makes conversions valid? Those are all fascinating questions, and they are really a subject of a separate class about conversion to Judaism. Today we're going to not talk about conversion at all, but we're going to talk about people who are descendants of or believed, not people who joined the Jewish people, but people who are believed to be descendants of others who are already established as and known to be Jewish. Historically, it was fairly easy to prove who was Jewish because all Jews were part of a Jewish community. So you knew everyone in your community. It was really easy. If somebody came from outside of the Jewish community and moved in from elsewhere, they moved into town, and they said they were Jewish. How do you know if they're Jewish? It was fairly easy, because if they were Jewish, they knew about everything about Judaism, they practiced Judaism, they kept Shabbat, they ate kosher, they knew all the prayers, they read Hebrew, they were a practicing Jew. It was almost unheard of, or was unheard of, for non-Jews to know Hebrew, do the prayers, and follow the commandments. Therefore, Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, which was written some 450 years ago, says very clearly, a Jew who is a practicing Jew that comes from another community and moves into your community and says they're Jewish, there is no reason to question them, for uh, we have every reason to believe that they are halachically Jewish. Today, however, the Jewish community faces a challenge in identifying who is Jewish for two reasons. Firstly, most Jews, in, at least in this country, no longer live an active Jewish life, no longer are familiar with Jewish prayers, no longer are familiar with have studied Torah, no longer are following, actively following the commandments, and no longer can easily be identified as a Jew. <coughs> At the same time, a very due to assimilation, a very large number of halachic non-Jews are today active within the Jewish community. People who perhaps have a father who is Jewish, people who perhaps were converted in a non-halachic manner. Many of these Jews have Jewish knowledge and experience at least on par with most Jews that have somewhat weak Jewish knowledge and Jewish experience. So a Jew who makes a Seder, most Jews in the United States make a, make a Seder. There are many non-Jews today making Seders. Jews like Hanukkah candles, many non-Jews today like Hanukkah candles. 
Even reading Hebrew, many non-Jews today read Hebrew. In fact, in Israel today, there are many non-Jews who speak fluent Hebrew. So, knowledge of Judaism or some minor Jewish practice no longer can serve as an automatic assumption that a person is Jewish today. Now, this is a particularly great problem for Jews coming from the former Soviet Union. Because in the former Soviet Union, there was no organized Jewish life for about 70 years, which is a couple generations, two or three generations. Almost all Jews from the former Soviet Union with, at, the fall, during the, at the moment of the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 had virtually no knowledge of Judaism and had never taken an active part in Jewish life. How then do we know if these people are Jewish or not? If they come to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, please marry me, how do we know if they're Jewish? How do we know if they can marry another Jew? So to prove someone's Jewish status... What we need to do is we need to dig up documents of their matrilineal line to find out if they have an ancestor that we can go back to that we can be certain is Jewish. If somebody can prove that their grandmother is Jewish, then that would mean that they are, that they are Jewish as well. So what we would have to do is go back to a grandmother or a great-grandmother, go back to a time when all Jews were practicing Judaism, and when it was unheard of for non-Jews to have somewhat Jewish practice, and if we could go back to such a stage, we can prove definitively that a grandmother was Jewish. Wouldn't that have to be on the matrilineal On the matrilineal side, the mother's mother, or the mother's mother's mother. Would not be. They have to follow the matrilineal sign. Mother's mother's mother. Uh, yeah, but what if the records have been lost? So now, so a challenge is the records are lost. It's a big challenge. So today there are organizations and companies that do that kind of research for people. But we're not going to get into the details of how that research is done today because that's not the focus of our class. It, there's a, it's a fascinating topic, but again, beyond the scope of our class today. Uh, but somebody can do that research, and there are organizations, if anyone does want to, I can point them to, that will do it for them. However, even if someone can prove that their grandmother or great-grandmother is Jewish, there is, which is not our focus of today's class, there is another step that has to be proven as well, that you are your grandmother or your great-grandmother's biological grandchild. That itself needs to be proven. Now, for someone living in the United States that can generally, at least until recently, be fairly easy because birth certificates will always name the biological mother in the birth certificate and um, therefore birth certificates in this country are fairly strong evidence. However, for people coming from the f former Soviet Union, False, or for other countries, false documentation was very common. The thing about their false documents is their false documents were not caught by their local officials because they use them all the time. But in our Western countries, we have much better for scenic, um, we have much better for scenic abilities, 
and we catch these false documents instantly. So, so when someone does not have, or some people lose their documentation, I don't have my grandmother's birth certificate. So when someone does not have documentation um, of biological ancestry, there are other ways to do it. You can do it using witness testimony. However, one solution to this problem is to use DNA testing to prove biological relationship of a grandmother or a grandmother, if still alive or if we somehow have a specimen. Or we can even do it through a cousin. Sometimes, and this is often used, if we have a cousin whom we know to be Jewish because they have brought Jewish proof, if you can prove relation to that cousin, then you would be, uh, you could prove matrilineal relation to that cousin, you would be um, Jewish by extension as well. Um, Rabbi, so the, yes? Is there uh, any, what about just the uh, Jewish uh, gene pattern? You know, I'm going to get to that. Very good question. Very good question. We're going to get to that. So once the status of your grandmother is proven, so the question is, so does DNA work? So in order to know if DNA works, we've said that DNA of relations is considered a simon, not a simon muvhak. It's considered a <coughs> lower level evidence, not absolute, not very strong evidence. Will it work to establish someone's Jewish identity? So once a grandmother's Jewish status is proven, establishing biological relationship requires, according to Jewish law, a lower level of evidence. That's because all biological relationships are never proven, but presumed. It's practically impossible to prove beyond all doubt anyone's biological relationship. How do you know your, your father let alone the father. How do you know your mother is your real mother? Unless you know, unless you see your, uh, unless, well, your mother claims so, but unless you could get your OBG to claim so as well, and um, who was there at your birth, or unless you can, um, unle and they knew you throughout your lifetime, it is practically impossible to bring absolute evidence of biological relationship. Therefore, the requirement of biological relationship in halacha is a lower level evidence. As a result, most halachic poskim, most halachic experts have said that DNA evidence can be used um, with, depending on the detail of how, what kind of relative and what the evidence at hand is, um, can be used in some instances to prove um, biological relationship to somebody else, a grandmother, for example, whom we know to be Jewish, it must be along with other, it must be used along with other evidence. Say, you have some sort of certificate, you have some sort of, you have witness testimony of relationship or the like. As a result, the rabbinate in Israel has started to accept DNA tests to prove Jewish status alongside other evidence in biological to prove somebody's bio, biological relationship to somebody that we know is Jewish. Another way, though, that people want to use DNA to prove that they are Jewish is through genetic ancestral analysis. So, as we mentioned earlier, people send their saliva to Ancestry.com with the 23andMe and are told that what their ancestry is. People are often surprised to discover 
ancestry that they didn't know they thought they had. Um, or sometimes people thought they had ancestry, but they had no evidence to it. Many people have discovered Jewish ancestry from these tests. Uh, we get calls all the time at the JCC. I just discovered I am 25% Jewish. What do I do? <laughs> does, that, does that make them Jewish? Our question for today is, does that make them halachically Jewish? Firstly, it's important to note, ancestry declarations done by these tests are not exactly 100% accurate. Um, studies have shown that different companies produce very different results. In fact, tests that have been done um, where individuals samples, multiple samples from one individual have been sent to a single company, both Ancestry and 23andMe and National Geographic, which is the third big one, um, have shown that each result from three different samples, each come back different. Not very different, but there are differences. The reason for this is um, the companies themselves are constantly updating their own algorithms. They're constantly updating their own results. Um, their results are not absolute, but they are rather estimates. And that's because tribal or ethnic ancestry is not monolithic. No group today comes from a single person with a distinct DNA dramatically different from everybody else. Rather, everyone is descendant of many people, often people who tended to have similar DNA. Going back, we have many ancestors. We have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-grandparents. When you go back 10 generations, you have a 1,000 ancestors. But you don't really have a 1,000 ancestors because most groups intermarry within the group multiple times over uh, based on geographic location. Jewish people have married within the Jewish people. And so we intermarry a lot. As a result, we tend to have very similar genetics um, of different groups, but they are not all exactly the same. It's important to note that what happens is over the years, people from one group move and join other groups which means that people that have one group's DNA then took that DNA and mix it into another group. So people from other groups came back to this group. So no particular group has a particular distinct DNA sequence that another group does not have. Ancestry testing then, what they're doing is they're creating algorithms of common DNA variations, uh, um, common DNA markers within specific groups. They find common markers in specific genealogical groups that they've created, specific branches. They've created general branches, European, um, Middle Eastern, East Asian, Southern European, Western European, Eastern European, and then specific nations within them. Um, and, so, um, and so they've created, looked at, look at specific markers, and that allows them to say, based on a person, how many markers a person has of specific groups, whether people are part of a specific group. As databases grow, they're getting smarter and smarter, and so they're constantly updating specific DNA markers of different groups, um, how common they are, what the variables are, and how likely they are. I want to take questions at the end, because we're running over time. So ancestry tests, then, are an estimate of ancestry. They're not by any means definitive. 
So given that there is no specific, given that there is no specific Jewish DNA sequence, but rather a range of sequences that are common to Jews, so currently science has no way to definitively prove Jewish identity. We cannot tell you 100% what your ancestry is. We can say you have markers that would make you likely to be part of, have a specific, have ancestry from this group or from that group. The groups are not absolute. The groups are estimates. Um, your relationship to that group is an estimate uh, based on algorithms. None of it is exact. A further problem is that Jewish identity, as we said, is matrilineal. To be Jewish means your mother must be Jewish. Having Jewish ancestry does not by any means make you Jewish. In fact, a person with three out of four Jewish grandparents, but their mother's mother is not Jewish, would not be halachically Jewish. So the fact that a person has large amount of Jewish DNA does not necessarily make a person Jewish. There is, however, a solution to the matrilineal problem. There is a small subset of DNA not part of the 46 chromosomes, um, called mitochondrial DNA, mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA, or sometimes called mtDNA, is something that is only past matrilineal. There are 16,000, it's much smaller than any of our other chromosomes, there are 16,000 pairs of mitochondrial, D mitochondrial DNA, making it much smaller than any of our other um, chromosomes. But it comes exclusively for, from our mothers because the sperm of the mitochondrial, the, the mitochondrial DNA of the sperm is destroyed while in embryo. So the mitochondrial DNA that survives is only from your mother. So using mitochondrial DNA testing, we can definitively identify your matrilineal ancestry. Four, four mitochondrial DNA sequences have been identified for Ashkenazic Jews. Some other have been identified for particular other groups, for Asbury Jews, for um, Georgian Jews. Other groups have also identified particular sequences. Um, the four that are found... Um, so the, about 40% of Ashkenazic Jews have, DNA, have one of these four DNA sequences, meaning that they are descendants of one of the, these four women that had the original sequence. Now, not having it does not mean that you are not Jewish because 60% of Ashkenazic Jews do not have it. You can even be a matrilineal descendant of one of those original four women that 40% of Ashkenazic Jews are descendant of and not have it because um, we know that the genetic sequencing mutates from over generations. It doesn't happen. It's very uncommon. It happens about the mut a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA happens about one in every 200 births. But it will happen over generations, and therefore a significant percentage of people will have had their sequence mutate over the years. However, having the sequence does not necessarily mean that you're Jewish either. A very small percentage, uh, about 0.4% of the general U European population, has the same markers. 
And this varies from region to region. The difference, some areas have more, some areas have less. Um, but others do, Europeans do have these markers. Either they are matrilineal descendant of these same people, or it is also possible for people to randomly mutate to multiple people to randomly mutate to the same sequence. Remember, you're talking about billions of people. And so over time, many people, especially in mitochondrial DNA, people can, uh, it can mutate to the same sequence as well. Given that Jews are about 1%, uh, sorry, 0.1% of European world population, European meaning people that are, whose ancestors are from Europe, um, we're a very small percentage of the um, European population in the world. So a person who randomly discovers that they have these, one of these four mitochondrial markers is actually more likely not to be Jewish than to be Jewish. In other words, more non-Jews statistically have the marker than don't have the marker. So having the marker does not prove that a person is Jewish. However, Bayes' theorem tells us that when comparing somebody or when comparing a statistic to A or B, you don't know which one, whether it's A or B, it really depends on where you started from. So if you start from a statistic that is most likely A and then, in other words, someone who's most likely Jewish, and then you find one of those markers, then that marker, since a very large percentage of Jews have it, that marker would most likely mean that person is Jewish. Somebody who doesn't have any reason to believe that they're Jewish, someone who's most likely non-Jewish that finds that marker, though that marker is very rare within the non-Jewish population, chances are they are more likely to be non-Jewish. So it really depends on where your starting point is. And so because of that, some have argued that for somebody who has strong reason to believe they are Jewish, but not conclusive proof, what would be strong reason to believe they are Jewish? They have documents, but documents that are not sufficient proof um, of someone's Jewishness. Their grandmother um, spoke a fluent Yiddish and happens to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. But we don't know if she, or their grandmother made a Seder. We don't know. We don't have overwhelming evidence of their Jewishness. So then some have argued that in such an instance um, where we have other strong evidence of their Jewishness, but not strong enough, we could use these mitochondrial markers to prove someone's Jewishness. If they have, it would be what we could consider a simon. It can be a sign. Um, based on this, um, Rav, um, some poskim, notably one of the greatest halachic authorities alive today, Rav Zalman Nechemya Goldberg of Jerusalem, um, has... Um, allowed for the use of mitochondrial DNA to prove Jewishness in, in conjunction with other strong but non-definitive proofs. Many other halachic authorities, uh, poskim, notably Rav Shmuel Vosner, um, who passed about two years ago but was um, one of the most widely respected halachic authorities, strongly disagreed and did not think that 
uh, mitochondrial markers could be used, Jewish markers should ever be used based on our current knowledge in identifying somebody's Jewishness. Currently, to the best of my knowledge, the mitochondrial mark DNA markers are generally not used in proving Jewish identity today. It is still an issue that is up for debate that may change as our ability to identify these things and understand genetic mutations improve. In conclusion, to answer our question, in conclusion, to answer our question, can DNA prove if somebody is Jewish? The answer is it can possibly sometimes prove somebody is Jewish. Definitely, it can be used to prove somebody's biological relationship to someone else who we know to be Jewish. Um, it can possibly, though hotly debated, uh, if someone has a mitochondrial marker, it can possibly work with other very strong evidence of Jewish identity. Uh, possibly not. Just general ancestral, ancestry.com, or 23andMe, sorry, um, uh, claim that somebody has a certain percentage of Jewishness would not serve as proof halachically that somebody is Jewish. But does it really matter? Can it really hurt just to accept anyone who claims they are Jewish? Should we not just accept anyone that wants to be Jewish? Does it really matter that much? The answer, I believe, is yes. Jewish purity is one of what we call shleimuta'am, or uh, is one of the most important values in Judaism. We believe, and we say this many times in our prayers, the Torah tells us this, God separated us from all the nations, making us his chosen people. And our blessing on the Torah, we say, Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, God chose us from all the nations, the Natan Lanu at Torah gave us his Torah. Our prayers we say, You have chosen us from all the nations. So we stand distinct and unique as the people who have made a covenant with God, fulfilling God's, to fulfill God's unique commandments that he has given us. And we stand distinct and unique from the other nations of the world not necessarily better or worse, but distinct. We're different. We spoke a couple of months ago, we did a class on what it means to be the chosen people. Um, we, and we've survived as such, being distinct and unique for thousands of years. Today, while for many years persecution was our greatest threat, today the greatest threat to Judaism and Jewish continuity is assimilation. Now assimilation goes two ways. Firstly, Jews can lose their Jewish identity by stopping to practice Judaism and assimilating among non-Jews to the point that their children or grandchildren no longer know that they are Jewish, they are now assimilated. But perhaps, and that is a very great concern, particularly in the American Jewish community today, with many Jews having only minimal Jewish knowledge or Jewish practice, and therefore this, their grandchildren will forget it. Uh, but perhaps even worse is for non-Jews to assimilate among Jews because when that happens, we lose our Jewish distinction. <coughs> and so today, there are many hundreds of thousands of <coughs> millions of people who may have some Jewish connection. Their fathers are Jewish. Their grandfathers are Jewish. <coughs> they have some sort of Jewish connection but they are not, or they have 
Ancestry.com Jewishness or some other form of Jewishness, uh, but they are not halachically Jewish. While we are open to anyone joining the Jewish people, anyone can go through giur, can go through the process of joining the covenant, and anyone who wishes can join the Jewish people. However, they can only do so by going through this process. It is important for us as a people that the, we keep the Jewish nation whole and pure. It is important that we are able to easily identify, which is becoming more difficult, unfortunately, be able to easily identify who is Jewish and who is not. Um, it is important, I tell people when, I, when we do um, marriages and the like, it's important for people to keep their Jewish documentation so that their children, their grandchildren will be able to identify them as being Jewish, such as a ketubah is a very, your most important Jewish document. Um, it is important that we, as a Jew, as a Jew, that we ensure the continuity of the Jewish people by, um, re, by knowing who is Jewish and who is not, by remaining distinct. And while we love all people and we welcome all people and care for everyone, we still want to, and it is important to us as a people that we retain our Jewish distinction, a distinction that is reserved only for what we call B'nai Brit, members of the covenant, Jewish people who are Jewish according to halacha. So yes, it does matter who is Jewish and it's important for us to differentiate. People who are not halachically Jewish are still welcome and um, cared for, um, but it is important to make that distinction to know who is Jewish and who is not, who is a member of God's covenant, um, and so that we do not lose the sense of our peoplehood and we do not lose that sense of the nation that God has chosen. <laughs>